crowding and overcrowding is kind of this big thing that everybody's pushing on. But you and I both know, you know, if you are willing to put in a little bit of extra driving time and willing to do a little bit of searching, there are plenty of ski areas that you can go to that are not crowded, that are affordable and honestly are just as good as some of those other ones. They might not have the fancy amenities, the high-speed lifts. They might not have the on-site lodging, the spas, whatever. But if you're focused on just skiing with no crowds, there's plenty of options out there, guys. Hello, fellow Powderhounds, and welcome to the Powderhounds Podcast, the Ski Trivia Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Shaw. You can follow me on Twitter at PowderhoundSkis. You can also email me at PowderhoundSkiTrivia at gmail.com for comments, questions, or corrections. This episode will get you fired up for spring skiing. Yes, the race to stay open is on. Fortunately, the recent storms that pummeled most of ski country should extend the season well into April. This episode should also get you excited to do some hopping around to visit different ski areas this spring and next season. My guest, Matthew Zabransky of MidwestSkiers.com will get you fired up to take the road less traveled. Did you know there are 120 ski areas in the Midwest with a good chunk located right outside the region's best known cities? Sure, the Midwest is a huge geographic region, but you don't have to look too far to find fast turns on your next trip to the Midwest. Also, did you know that almost three dozen Olympians and X Game medalists started skiing and riding in the Midwest? Ever hear of Lindsey Vaughn, Paula Moulton, Danny Davis, or Cindy Nelson? Finally, did you know the Midwest ski industry had near record-setting participation last season and is on track to do even better this season? It also had the longest operating season, that would be days open, last season. The Midwest also owns the night skiing market and has the youngest demographic of skiers and riders in the United States. So much to unpack, so much to talk about, to really understand the not-so-hidden gem that is Midwest skiing. The music inspiration for the episode is The Black Keys, but not for the Weight of Love lyrics, but for the band's origins. They hail from the former Quaker Oats capital of the world, Akron, Ohio. Trust me, all will be explained later in the episode. But until then, I invite you to sit back, kick your feet up, relax, and enjoy the experience of everything skiing and riding. Powderhounds.
Sources for today's episode, Bent Paddle Brewing Company, Local Freshies, MidwestSkiers.com, Midwest Ski Areas Association, NSAA, SkiCentral.com, TGR, and various ski area trail maps and websites. I am excited to welcome my guest today, Matthew Zabranski. Matthew is the owner, creator of MidwestSkiers.com, the go-to resource for everything and anything Midwest skiing. He is also an accomplished filmmaker and skier. Matthew, welcome to the show. Jeff, thank you for having me, man. This is um, super excited to talk about some of these topics we're going to dive into in just a bit, but always a pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. We're going to have some fun today. Uh, so listeners get to know you a little bit. I'm going to kick things off as I usually do with the lightning round. Here we go. How long have you been skiing and where did you start? I have been skiing for 31 years. The first place I ever skied was Wilmot Mountain in uh, southern Wisconsin. That's a pretty good long stretch. Decades. Would you say Wilmot is your home ski area or do you have a different one over those <laughs> <No>. decades? <laughs> No, um, we'll get into it probably a little bit more, but you know, I've been a pass holder at, I don't know, probably a couple dozen different ski areas in the Midwest. Uh, right now I don't have a home and it's kind of uh, mostly for work purposes because I get the opportunity to travel around uh, the, our lovely state of Minnesota and ski all of uh, all 20 of their ski areas, which is pretty cool. Nice. Well, we're, that number might come up a little later, so uh, you're you're on top of things. But I also don't have a home. I don't claim home ski area, so we're you're in good company, or I'm in good company, I should say. <laughs> Favorite terrain? You, the usual kind of cruisers, trees, bumps, shoots, all of the above. You know, if I had to pick one thing, I love honestly super technical steep terrain, and um, not necessarily like really well snow covered. I like kind of picking my way through things. Um, I actually just skied a a shoot uh, up in Michigan that was kind of like picked over. And I enjoyed like being able to kind of methodically kind of go through that little uh, steep section. That was kind of fun to, you know, just test your skills at a different level. It's pretty fun. Love that answer. That's the first I got, <laughs> but you're right. It's nice to actually have to think a little bit when you're on your sticks now. Uh, okay. So we have a little bit of background there. So this, maybe this next question, the answer will be interesting. What's your approach to the ski day? Are you a first chair guy? Do you <laughs> kind of like, you know, believe in that old adage, the so-called 10 runs before 10 AM, the 10 before 10, <laughs> are you bell to bell? Do you just find that Adirondack chair facing uh, the sun in the middle of the day? It's a tough one. You know, it's been a long time since I've had just a day where I just go ski by myself and I'm not focused on like filming or, uh, you know, getting an interview or something like that. You know, usually like growing up, I was always like a get there as early as possible, you know, be standing in line waiting. And then honestly, I would probably ski as late as my legs would possibly let me. And that's we just got back from Steamboat a little bit ago. And that's pretty much what we did, um, which was super fun. Oh, we'll have to definitely hear about that. That's one of my favorite places. So uh, <laughs> anxious to hear. And I know they've done a lot of work over there. So we'll, we'll, we'll see if we can make time to get, get the steamboat. This is a great segue to this next question, although you checked it already off. Any bucket list destinations either this season, next season, five, five no. years out kind of thing? There's not many. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to ski at a lot of different ski areas uh, across the, the states. I think I have two that are definitely like I need to go. And one of them is just overseas in general. I think 
I have never been overseas. I want to ski. I want to get the culture of it. It's a completely different animal. I want to experience that. And then um, Palisades is something that I have just had my eyes on for years. I've never been able to logistically make it happen yet, but it is on the bucket list for so many different reasons. I got to I gotta make it out there at some point. I think my third podcast episode was Palisades and uh, former, formerly named, but still. And it was uh, it was great just sort of going back through that with folks I was skiing with that day. So to close this out in this lightning round, where are you skiing next? I know you just got back from a long tour, which we'll get into, <laughs> but where are you skiing next? Maybe tomorrow, depending on how uh, yeah, this, this storm so, is, is looking up. Yeah, so tomorrow I am skiing at Afton Alps. We are filming a beginner series that is sponsored by Head Skis. Uh, so we got to do some dialogue as well as uh, shoot some B-roll for that series. So I might get some free laps in there as well. The weather's looking pretty nice, so we'll, we'll see if I can sneak away for a bit. Awesome, man. Well, I hope you have a great day and I hope you do sneak out uh, after all that work. We're going to now move into sort of our main uh, segment. And I don't like bearing the lead, Matthew. So I, you recently wrote, quote, this place, Mount Mixaba, excuse me if I mispronounced it, That's is right. what is what Midwest skiing and riding is all about. Accessible, mm -hmm. affordable and fun, end quote. So, Matthew, if you don't live in the Midwest, why should skiers make it a, make a point to ski in the Midwest? Well, oh my gosh, like I think uh, you know we're dubbed the the flyover states, and and I understand like we you know our stats are nothing to be proud of, and I think that's what actually makes us unique is you know everybody likes to compare like vertical rise, how many trails you have, this, that, and the third. But in the Midwest, I, I think all those stats go out the window because at the end of the day, we're all so you know statistically similar that you know you dif differentiate yourself between different elements and vibes of the ski hill that you're going to. So Mixaba, for example, is one of those places that it is a community hill. It's run by the community. It was actually started by a group of fathers uh, that wanted to have a place where they could send their kids because uh, some of the hills, the other hills were a little bit too big and intimidating and too expensive for them. So they all threw in money in a hat and they literally backed up a old Ford pickup and um, and they ran a rope tow on it. And that's how it started. And this was back, I believe, in like the 40s, 50s. And it's evolved since then. It's, but the, the premise has been exactly the same, affordable, accessible and um you know, in just a community. So you, you roll up and it's all rope toes. There's like, I think three or four rope toes at this place, handful of trails, but it's just kids having fun, getting out there, enjoying it. And there's no stigma. And I think that that's the thing I love about the Midwest is we don't have this like West coast stigma of you got to be dressed or ski a certain way or do it a certain way. I mean, we got guys in car hearts, we got guys in snowmobile outfits, kids you know barely making it up and that's completely acceptable here and actually we embrace that stuff and i think that that's really at the heart of what we you know what we do here in the midwest is get people into the sport regardless of you know your ability and what you're doing and, and just try to make it as fun as, and as affordable and as accessible as possible yeah i had a similar experience actually coming back on uh sunday i was telling you about before hit record i stopped at brattleboro ski hill it's uh, right off the Interstate 91 in southern Vermont, and it was just a great day. $5 lift ticket, rope tow serves about maybe 300 vertical, two open slopes. You got a race course on one side. You got a mini terrain park, progression park on the other side, and the main sort of open slope in the middle. And it's just, every, it's just a mix of everybody, you know, kids, seniors, people like myself just stopping by for an hour or so just to do some final laps before they head home or maybe on their way up to 
to the ski hill uh, and 100% volunteer run. Don't know the history, but let's just say that bull wheel or not, it's not bull wheel. It's, it's a rope toe, but the machinery is, is, is quite dated, but it still works. <laughs> and they figured out a way to, to make it work on a, on a pretty much zero uh, dollar uh, budget. So, you know, for those new, if you had, and they had a week to go to the Midwest and just do some hop around, where would you suggest they go? And I understand you don't maybe want to pick out favorites, but for <laughs> an intro, where would you recommend setting up shop? And even if you had to drive a little bit, you know, I think there are, you know, there's a bunch of pockets, but if, you know, you were to boil it down to a couple of main regions in, in the Midwest, I think the Minneapolis greater region is, is a great one. And then you have your Michigan, uh, lower peninsula specifically, either upper or lower. And then you have the UP. And I think that those are kind of your three big zones and they obviously kind of spread out from there depending on like where you're at and how far you want to travel but within those zones you have oh my gosh such a just collective of crazy ski areas focusing on every anything and everything you have you know for you know lower peninsula you have the boyne mountains of the world with an eight <laughs> high speed eight pack uh indoor water park you know amenities galore and then even just 20 minutes up the road, you have a, a ski hill, Nubs Knob, that has only fixed grips, really skier focused, um, completely different vibe, even though they're only 20, 30 minutes away from each other. And, and same thing in Minneapolis, you have these, these ski areas that are baked right in the center of, of, the, of the city, basically. Like you can see planes taking off over your head. You're, you see the skyline from the top of the hill. You know, um, some of the best uh, rope toes that you will find anywhere and, and some of the best terrain park skiers that you'll find or snowboarders you'll find anywhere as well. Um, you know, to Lutzen, which is about three and a half, four hours, depending on where you're at from uh, Minneapolis, which is, I mean, more comparable to probably like an, uh, more of an East Coast vibe. You know, you're looking at Lake Superior, your whole descent down, um, almost nearly a thousand vertical, high speed lifts, uh, gondola, like in everything in between. So. Those are kind of like the three zones that I would map. I would say you would need at least a few days in each one of them to get a really good flavor. And my other uh, suggestion is like never ever, and, and I never write a ski area off based on its stats. We get this a lot in the Midwest because the stats are so like, you know, under a thousand, most are anywhere between 300 and 500. People like they make a big deal about that extra hundred feet of vertical or those extra 10 trails. But I can tell you from experience, every one of them regardless of their stats is going to ski completely different and they're going to have things that they're really good at and they're going to have things that they're not so good at and the only way to honestly know them very well is to just go visit them so i always suggest like the little mom and pop ski hill that you know is 30 bucks a lift ticket go check it out go spend a day there you might like it you might hate it but you won't know what it's like until you go there and we have found so many hidden gems just by going to these places and being like holy crap this is a really cool ski area. I would have never visited it because the stats don't do it justice. The trail map doesn't do it justice. Maybe their website sucks, but you go there and you're like, dude, this terrain is amazing. Um, why aren't more people skiing here? And Bruce Mound, uh, just south of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, is a great example of that. Yeah, the it just you made me think of. I, I think I read this in maybe one of the Chris Diamond uh, skiing books a while back, but. Something just about marketing budgets and the fact that maybe 50 ski areas of the 473 in the U.S. 
like account for like 99% of the marketing budget. So mm-hmm. of course, you know, we're not going to hear about most skiers and riders. You and I maybe aren't most, uh, maybe won't hear about them. We'll really have to take an extra effort to find them. Hopefully this podcast, your website, which we're going to get right into in a second, uh, is that's what we're hoping to do. Uh, but one other thing you mentioned, uh, just going back to Palisades on your, on your, uh, I guess, bucket list, uh, the Lutzen view. You're going to get a similar one at Palisades, man. You, you, the lake view, I can see it. I see the connection here. You're going to love it up there and a couple of the other ski areas around Tahoe. So I do hope uh, that that happens soon. But yeah, let's get into uh, MidwestSkiers.com, your website. You're the founder, the creator, the mastermind behind it. Tell us uh, about it. Yeah, man. This, so this is a uh, it's a long, long time coming. So I grew up on the southwest side of Chicago, learned to ski at southern Wisconsin uh, ski hills and immediately fell in love with the sport you know it was a family sport for us it was one of the ways that we connected as a family like so many of you guys your listeners i'm sure do and uh i knew right away that it was going to be a huge part of my life um i didn't know it was going to be this big but it uh it evolved so growing up you know i wanted to be a ski bum you know the legendary move out west in your car and and figure it out ski bum but my dad kind of you know, told me you could do that or, you know, you can go to school, you can get a really good job and then you can ski anywhere you want out West, you know, on the weekends. So that was my approach. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go my, you know, my dream school was university of Wisconsin, uh, Madison. So, you know, I got in there and that was my goal was like, let's get a job. Let's go. We're going to move out to Colorado, maybe go to a basin on the weekends, you know, and that was the game plan. Something happened at school, which I'm internally grateful for, but uh, I met my wife there. I uh, ran into her at a bar, college bar at Logan's, if anybody's listening that knows that uh, name. So, and bless her soul, she's an amazing individual, but she wanted to be a physician. And uh, this put me in a little bit of a crossroads as things kind of got a little more serious because I knew I was going to have to move along with her and I knew she wanted to end up back in Minnesota. So we had two chances. She had medical school training and residency. And I knew we had a chance. We had a chance. Like I maybe be able to get like a few years out West. Right. So we applied, she applied to a bunch of different programs, some of them out West, some East, some Midwest. And, you know, I hoped and prayed that maybe I would get like at least a handful of years out there. Well, I ended up, she ended up at a great school, um, Ohio State University for medical school training. Didn't really help my skiing situation very much. Mm -mm. Um, so I was a pass holder at Mad River, uh, there um which That's is now not, Mad, not, not Mad river Mad, not your Mad river yeah sorry uh <laughs> Mad river mountain not Mad river glen common confusion <laughs> and then you know second round so we had the residency thing coming up and of course it, i think it's so funny people don't know how this works but they literally hand you an envelope that you don't know where you're going you sit in a room with like all these other people and they hand you an envelope not labeled or anything and you open it and that's where you match to because you don't get this like you get to like put your thoughts in but at the end of the day they pick who you match with for your residency program. And I remember she brought the envelope to uh, lunch for me and she opened it and we had some good ones on there. I was like super stoked, like a couple of East Coasters. And I was like, yes, this could be really good. She opened the envelope and it was Akron, Ohio. And I'm like, God damn. It's <laughs> not the wild card that you're no. looking for. No, so, um, you know, so we move up to Akron and there's a couple little ski areas up there, but you know, that was when the light bulb went on and um that's when i realized because i was at this point i was pass holder at maybe like 10 different ski areas at this point over my career all midwest and um and i'm like why there's a lot of ski areas here why is there nobody talking about these you know and i'm looking around and there's there's good skiers you know like there's some hardcore skiers that are going out there 50 plus days a year ripping and then yeah then maybe they go out west in the springtime but 
I'm like, why is there no media source? Why is there nobody talking about all these ski resorts? I did a little bit of research and all of a sudden I found out there's over 120 uh, ski areas in the Midwest, which is crazy to think about, you know, for, for a flatlander kind of area. Um, so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had a little bit of background in film and photography. So I ended up buying a camera and I emailed maybe like three dozen ski areas in the Midwest. Nobody got back to me, but one, uh, and it all was me, all it takes. It's just one, right? One. And it was snow trails in Mansfield, Ohio. And I still, God bless their soul, because if they didn't, you know, if they didn't kind of reach back out to me, uh, Scott Chrislip, who's their GM there. Uh, if he didn't get back to me, I don't know if we would be where we are right now. And, uh, you know, he kind of, you know, and of course I did, I sent this email in November and like, you know, not experienced Matthew didn't know that that's like the busiest time of the year. Cause they're snowmaking, <laughs> they're yeah. getting everything ready. They're prepping for this, this crazy rush that's about to happen. And, uh, you know, Scott was so, so nice to be like, you know, we're going to carve time out. Cause I love this idea. I love what you're doing or want to do. And so come in whenever, pick a day, we'll make time to, for you to sit down with the owners, all of our, um, you know, operations guys, you can interview them, create whatever you need to do. Um, and you'll just kind of have, you know, the ski resort, it will be at your disposal. Um, and that's what started. And that was about four and a half years ago, I think. And um, it's kind of evolved ever since then, you know, we've, we've kind of have adjusted content as we've gone along. And uh, here we are now, it's been a crazy journey, but it's been really fun. And I think if nothing else, it just definitely solidified the idea that we need to like start talking about these little ski hills a lot more than we have been in, in the media. Congratulations. I mean, you're coming up on a, Thank sounds you. like year number five. Before you know it, you'll be at the decade anniversary. So uh, <laughs> that's awesome to hear. I mean, just from the chain of events that led, led to it all. And, uh, and yeah, what a wild card pulling out Akron, Ohio. But all right. So you just got back. You're talking about, obviously, you had the camera the first ski area that said, yes, let's do this thing. Well, you just, uh, I think, concluded a, a one of your probably many filming tours uh, this season. And, and I followed a little bit of it on social uh, leading up to this. And one moment, which I liked a lot, you said, quote, there's only one way to start a powder day. And then you opened a bottle of champagne. And I was like, dude, that is amazing. I've never done that. Is that a uh, Midwest powder day vibe kind of thing? <laughs> Well, yeah, so there's a little bit of backstory. So my uh, <laughs> my wife and I really do enjoy champagne. Like we just drink it pretty regularly, not like, you know, obviously for special occasions as well. But, you know, it was her first powder day. So she just got back oh, into skiing for, gotcha. um, you know, gotcha. for she was on a hiatus for many, many years and she's been scared to get back into it. And uh, last year she did. And we don't get a lot of powder days in the Midwest. We maybe get like three notable storms a year, roughly, like in some regions. Some we get more in the UP, we get a lot more. Um, but in your like Twin Cities, like even L uh, Michigan's LP, we really only get like three decent storms, three chances at this. And sometimes it's not what it turns out to be. You know, it's either rain or sleet or we don't get as much snow. And this one turned out perfect. You know, it was beautiful weather. Um, you know, I think we ended up getting like 15 inches or something, which in the Midwest, that's a lot. Like that's that's a huge day. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure that we celebrated it in a way that made sense. So yeah, Perfect. we popped a little champagne, a little bubbly in the parking lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is the vibe because everyone's so stoked because they just don't happen that often that like everybody is in the parking lot, getting excited, cracking beers open at 8 a.m. You know, they're just like amped up because we don't get to experience this like as much as, you know, uh, West Coast or even East Coast to some degree. 
do you know we like i said see this maybe three times a year and then you know they have to have the conditions be right it has to be your day off or you know a day that you're able to kind of shift and get out there and it's got to be the right ski area because some of our ski areas are too flat to even enjoy powder <laughs> so you know it's like you have to have this like perfect little storm of of events occur to have a good powder day in the midwest and that just happened to be it so now where was that that was at Welch Village. So okay. it is for those that um, probably aren't aware, it's about 45 minutes southeast of the Twin Cities. So it's one of the Twin Cities kind of um, local spots. And um, it's a little bit bigger than some of the areas that are directly in the cities that are like only like 10 minutes away. So that's usually like when people are looking to get away, don't want to drive a ton. Um, usually Welch Village is kind of their next choice on the on the list of, you know, getting a little more terrain for the drive. Gotcha. Now, what other skiers did it hit on this filming tour? Oh man, um, I just got back from Michigan and that was a long one. Um, we were out there for about 10 days. I was, it was part of a, I was out there for a terrain park conference. I'm very involved with the industry. I'm super happy when I started this project. It was a huge push for me it was not only to be um, consumer facing, but also play this middleman part of, you know, I want to help the industry grow. I want to be the voice for the skiers, but I wanted to do so in a very organized and business structure. So. When I go to these events, you know, I, I'm very open and honest about my opinions about where the industry should go, but I'm also doing it and presenting it in a way that is uh, healthy. And I think that that's something that as a, as, as a ski industry, as ski consumers, we need to understand. We can't just go on Facebook, go on social media and roast ski areas. Like to do this properly, you have to set up an agenda. You have to be business-like minded because these are the people you're working with. And that's how you can actually create some change and actually move the needle maybe to something that you would like to see as a skier. So when I started this project, that was very, very important to me was not only to be involved with obviously the skier facing side, but also be involved with the industry side. So I try to go to as many conferences as I can. I'm lucky enough to present at a lot of them. And, um, and you know, it's really, it's great for both sides because I get to give a new view that they haven't seen. I'm unbiased. I don't have a stake in the game, if you will. I don't have a ski area. Um, but at the same time, you know, I want them to be successful because I enjoy what they have to offer. So it's been really fun. So I was out there for a conference, a train park conference. And man, did I, I tried to hit as many as I could in Michigan. I did Boyne, Nubs Knob, Mount McSaba, Mount Holiday, Treetops, um, Hickory Hills, and Hanson Hills, I think, on that few days that I was off there. So it was a fun that's, one. That's impressive lineup. Yeah, you know, you got <laughs> me thinking about I think I, I had this note a little later, but you got me thinking about something I heard recently. I, again, I, I can't remember the source, but that a lot of really good terrain park skiers and riders come out of the Midwest, because if you think about just the rope toes, yep. like they get up and down the hill so quickly that they can just lap the terrain, the progression yep. park so quickly and so much that they just get better. And I'm just thinking about like, you know, scary, maybe I grew up skiing and had to take the trail to the top, ski down, get yep. into the terrain, you know, get yep. into the wait my turn. And then maybe chicken out like the first few times and then eventually do it. So just that like ability to, 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 to get so many quick hits. And that's a really, you know, unique benefit from a terrain park standpoint. Yeah. And it's super unique to the park. And I think the other thing too, that people don't always necessarily uh, recognize is that you don't have to hit every feature. So there's people that are trying to land one trick on one feature. Well, they can just lap that feature. Like they don't have to go all the way to the bottom. They can just get back on the rope, go up, you know, 50 feet, hit that feature, and then just continue to dial that in until they, they finally get that. And then they can go back up to the top and hit it. 
But um, yeah, the other thing, and, and I've you know when I was at this train park summit, I was actually talking with uh, one of the the Boeing representatives there, and I'm trying to get them to actually put some ropes in because it takes so much pressure off of your main lifts. That's the other huge benefit of it, right? Because if you have train park kids lapping a lift, think of all of that traffic that you can divert onto a rope that has almost an unlimited uphill capacity. So I honestly think, you know, I you know, I don't have a magic ball or can't like really see the future, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a little more rope action in even some of the bigger resorts just because of that fact alone that it could take some of the some of the traffic off some of their main lifts. Yeah, and it, it just reminds me, I, I did steam out snow over the weekend, and they have this section of their mountain called Corinthia, and it's basically mm-hmm. uh, where the X game started in the 2000, 2001, and now it's just a dedicated terrain park. But I did see a number of old rope toes that are just sort of scattered around the mountain that hadn't been taken out that could be moved and maybe maybe used for that purpose. Wanted to get to some of the projects that you've been working on <laughs> this season, and I think even leading up to this season, if you don't mind going there. The sure. first, thank a snowmaker tour. Uh-huh. Now, my understanding is there was a ridiculous amount of beers that were delivered. 650 at 25 different ski areas? Correct me if I'm wrong, but tell me about the inspiration for that and a little bit about the tour. Oh man, so this is uh this was just a uh, a fun one and it's it's kind of evolved into a life of its own which is great. So I um I started this last year and I'm very involved like I said earlier, very involved with the industry so much so that you know when I film I I'm very often early season going waking up at 1 or 2 in the morning going out and filming with uh, these snowmakers. And um you know last year I was kind of like I really want to do something special for these guys. They don't get a lot of attention. They're working at night so people don't really see them. I'm like, what can we do that could be kind of fun? So I'm, you know, lucky enough to have a, a pretty nice list of contacts. So I called a couple of people, uh, snowmaking manufacturers and said, hey, um, I got this idea. I'm thinking about like just hopping in my car. And at the time we were just buying cases of PBR. And I was like, you know, I'm thinking about just dropping off cases of PBR at like as many ski hills as I can within a couple of days. And, um, you know, talk to them and they're like, yeah, that sounds fun. And this, mind you, this was like the night before I was going to leave. I just like picked up the phone. I'm like, hey do you have a budget for maybe just like putting me up in a hotel or maybe some gas money or something like I'll front the beer money and we'll just make it work. And he's like, Oh, this is such a good idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was last year. And I think we, we didn't hit a lot. I think we only hit like maybe 15. It was still a good number Passed out like you know, 15 cases of beer and it caught wind. Like everybody was emailing uh, the snowmaking manufacturer and was like, Hey, you know, like we want to get beer. How do we get beer? So leading into this this year, I was like, we knew we had to do something bigger and better. So we organized with um, Techno Alpin, who is, uh, if for anybody that doesn't know, it's the Yellow Snow Guns, and um, Bent Paddle Brewing Company, which is up in Duluth. And I want to thank them so much because they donated so much resource, so many resources for this project, and it was just so much fun. And I think what was the best part of it is uh, Bent Paddle makes a beer called Snowmaker, which is super cool. So they donated, I don't even remember how many, yeah, it was like 30 cases of beer. Liquid Death got involved. They donated like 30 cases of water. Um, and then uh, Techno Alpin kind of like fronted some of the travel costs and helped with that. And yeah, we literally just hopped in a truck and drove for uh, three, two or three days straight, just hitting up as many r- resorts as we could, just dropping off cases of beer, saying thank you uh, to these guys and gals that are basically like, the lifeblood especially in the midwest the lifeblood of our sport right like we couldn't ski in the midwest especially south of minneapolis without snowmaking 
And um, so we just, it was kind of a, a thank you. And we, yeah, you know, we're planning on doing it every year. So it'll come back next year, hopefully bigger and even better. I don't know if we'll get more than 25 because that was a lot, but we will certainly try. Oh, just, just, that, that's just amazing. And you said that uh, Bent Paddle actually had this, a beer name Snowmaker? Yeah, it's super amazing. cool. I don't have, yeah, but I could send you potentially a photo, but um, it's super cool. The graphics, the the art design on it's really cool. It's got a skier on it and um, just, you know, it fit branding wise. Everything was like perfect. So I reached out <laughs> to them and they immediately were like, yes, let's do this. This sounds so cool. So everyone was super supportive and um, yeah, I can't wait for next year. I'm excited for it. Well, speaking of can't wait for next year, this next project, I, I can't wait for next year, the Bracket Challenge. All right. <laughs> Listeners probably remember this, maybe our November 2022 pod episode, the race to open. I Again, I had my disclaimer. This was not my idea. This came from the Midwest, Mr. Matthew Zabransky. Matt, tell us about the Bracket Challenge. How did it start? And are you going to do it again? Yeah, I mean, we're going to do it every year. It's, uh, it's so fun. It's, it's, you know, I was telling you, I don't know where the idea came from. I think it was definitely a little bit of influence from your listeners probably not super aware of Trollhagen. It is a small hill, um, just North of the twin cities, really quirky, really fun. And they run this awesome event called Lord of the ropes. And it's basically a bracket, um, bracket event where they invite 64 snowboarders. And what's really cool is it's peer judged. So each one goes head to head and then they kind of decide who won the matchup and it goes into the next round. And I've always loved brackets. You know, I, I went to university of Wisconsin, so it was a big March madness, which we're not in it this year. So I'm very disappointed in, but you know, um, I love brackets. I think the culture around it gets people amped up. It gets them excited. And even though you don't even really know the teams, you kind of are like rooting for them. So that's kind of where the premise came from is like, how do I create, um, awareness for preseason for people that open early because they should be rewarded, right? If you're going to push and you're going to open early and put the resources and the money towards it, I think you should be rewarded in the media. And uh, so that's where the idea was born. So what I did was basically the first year we did it, which I think was two years ago or a year ago, I basically seeded them based off of the year previous opening dates and they get a seed one through 64. And then basically we just throw them into a bracket and whoever wins as far as dates, opening dates, they just move on. And then I have a whole like hour something long um, live stream where I literally just fill out the bracket, drink beer, and just kind of like give people insights on some of the stuff they don't see because they don't know some of the snowmaking infrastructure. They might not know, you know, how big or, or even just snowmaking strategy. People don't understand that there is like a method behind this madness. You don't just like turn the guns on and just blow snow up in the air. People have a very strategic way of making snow. So trying to like put a little bit of education in there, have a little bit of fun. And then obviously um, just stoke people up for, um, for, you know, skiing in, in early season, which is usually in the Midwest, anywhere from October to November. It is must watch live stream, even <laughs> though I watched it on demand. I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm going to feed you questions. If there is a live chat function, I don't know if there is, or maybe there I'll is. Just, yeah. I'll, yeah. All right. So count me in for that. Um, and just so you know, I don't know if you, you probably didn't heard it, but my version of your bracket was, the race oh, to place nice. to face Killington because Killington and Vermont, yeah, typically like ninety nine times out of a hundred, they are going to be the one. Yeah. However, this year, believe it or not, Sunday River and Maine did beat them, and it was uh, actually my bracket was shattered right away. It was hilarious <laughs> because then I did a little like, hey, about my bracket in the next episode, and it was totally destroyed. It was hilarious. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that, and please, please, please keep doing it. 
uh, finally, too, man. I mean, this is yeah. that this is what it's all about. You know, I think it's uh, we got to share ideas, and I think like if the more like attention and media eyes that we can get on some of the stuff, the the better. So keep it up, man. Cause that's that's exactly what this whole industry is about. Is like how do we grow our little niche? Because you got to remember, the ski industry is so small compared to everything else out there. So we need to be supportive of every type of content, whether it's you know your your uh, podcast on the East Coast or West Coast or wherever it is. Like we need to continue to support every every element of this business because we need everything, all hands on deck to grow this thing. Well, speaking of our little niche or niche, depending on how you say it, Pursuit of Soul 2, TGR, yeah. Indie Pass, you, congratulations, you were uh, a part <laughs> of it. I believe you were a producer or- Yeah, uh, I think- it, we, we've gone through a bunch of titles. I kind of got to pick my title. I think I was a associate producer at the end of the day. Um, it started as like a field producer and kind of it's been evolving, but yeah. Well, th- again, congratulations for folks that don't know Indie Pass, which you just need to buy this coming year. In <laughs> fact, passes are on sale now. And I am not paid by Indie Pass at all. I'm just a huge, huge, huge fan. I know Matthew is as well. And this film was the second of sort of short film on what the small independent family-owned ski areas are all about so tell us about the film yeah i mean this was a uh, first of all the first one was absolutely amazing and i gotta give credit where credit is due um the first one kind of broke so many walls in the ski industry we're so focused on you know and and i get it the powder shots the sunny days the mogul skiing the you know cliff dropping and in Pursuit of Soul 1 just kind of broke through all of that. And it's like, no, we're going to do something completely different and, and really get at what we all experience, you know, which is the lifeblood of our ski industry. And there was so much emotion put in that first film. And, you know, it was mostly focused for budgeting reasons when I talked to Doug Fish about this because, you know, traveling costs a lot with a film crew. You know, they did a West Coast kind of tour and then they did an East Coast tour, which I'm sure, you know, you're aware of. You know, after seeing that film, I'm like, dang, man, they missed, I literally emailed Doug Fish and said, you guys missed the boat. Like this, this you need to highlight, this was your one chance to like mi- have the Midwest shine, you know, cause we have a lot of soul. We have a lot of character at our ski areas. And although we don't have like the epic, you know, skiing scenes that uh, some of the other films show, we definitely have, you know, enough to make a really nice film out of. So, you know, I kind of got some whisperings uh, last season uh, of a film that's going to be Midwest based. And, um, you know, initially I didn't know if I was going to be involved or not. And I kind of assumed I wasn't because I didn't want my heart to be broken. And I, I reached out to Doug Fish and I was like, hey, I, I would love to be involved with this project. And he kind of told me like, you know, we don't control that. Like we, we, we subcontract that out to TGR and they decide who they're going to work with. And that was, that was really gut-wrenching for me. Like I was like, you know, this is my zone. Like this is my baby. The Midwest is kind of my thing. And I, I just want to make sure they represent it in a really well way. And honestly, I just wanted to help, you know, it wasn't about the money, the fame or anything like that. It was just like, I just wanted to create a great product and help you guys accomplish your goals. So when he said that, I was kind of like, man, that stinks. And, you know, months went by, that was like probably in December, January, December went by and most of February. And then all of a sudden I get a call from TGR and they're like, you know, Hey, we want you to uh, come on as a as an associate or a field producer to help us kind of organize this story, um, to organize you know the the crew and and just to help out on the ground as as a um, as a team member of as part of this film. And I was like just blown away. I'm like you know being a kid that like grew up watching TGR movies and like that's like you put this on this pedestal and all of a sudden they're calling you and they're like giving you money to like it just was absolutely absurd. Um, you know, and I kind of had to take a step backwards and just kind of pinch myself a little bit. 
And it was the best experience. Like, it was a lot of work. I think people don't understand how much goes into these films. Like, we were on the road for, I think, uh, 16 days. And, you know, we're lugging around tons of gear. Uh, we have a kind of behind-the-scenes uh, interview. I have an interview with the director on our YouTube if you want a good feel for what it's like. But it's, like, packing up gear. It's, you know, moving. It's You never have a sense of home because you're always moving and always evolving. And you're just running around like maniacs, you know. 13, 14 hour days every day. Um, but, you know, I think when we got to watch, because we went to the official premiere at Buck Hill, and when we got to watch that in front of everybody and everyone's cheering and laughing at the moments that we wanted them to, it made it all well worth it. And um, and uh, it was just a great project. And I think, once again, it just puts a huge thank you to Doug Fish, the Indie Pass, um, to TGR for, for even just like taking a moment and stepping back and saying like, let's talk about these little hills because they get so overlooked in, in our media. So thank you for them and uh, for, for even just funding this project and getting it started um, because, you know, these little hills need to be talked about because they are the lifeblood of, of our entire industry. So, but it was such a fun project to be part of. Were you the one wearing the cheese head in the end yeah. credits? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um yeah so they they wanted to you know probably like b-roll baby b-roll <laughs> they wanted to represent me in the film a few different ways so um you know they made sure to get some there's some skiing shots of me I as well i think there was scattered. one of you coming like, through scattered. some rocks some rock stuff yeah. and then like you know so they 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 were super chris kitchen our director was like really funny about the whole situation we stopped at like we probably stopped at i kid you not probably 15 different cheese stores and we bought like different cheese curds along the way and um so it was a huge part of the film and they really wanted to dive into the midwest vibe so we went there and we did it um so they were they wanted to respect some of that uh some of that you know some of that culture into the film as well so no it's great it's great one thing i forgot to ask you about your tour that i just want to go back from because it segues nicely though how do you determine your locations and even even the shots that you that you take you know, did you come up with that series, of the seven ski areas, or did no. you just sort of you started? You went to one, and you're like, "Where? What else is around here?" And what yeah, else that's can usually I shoot? yeah. Usually, what I do. So, um, for those that aren't aware, and I know most of you guys are on the East Coast, we have a map on our on our website that has every single ski area in the Midwest. Um, and so, what I do is usually when I plan a trip, like for that one, I was going to Boyne for a conference, so I started pull up the map, and I'm looking, and I'm like, which ones are realistic? To hit you know and i usually try to do two a day if i can just because um our, our ski hills are relatively small you can hit two in a day so i usually try to do two and i just try to figure out logistics of travel time my goal is to hit every single one um not only that but document every single one which is completely different than just visiting because i have to pull out a camera and i have to film b-roll and i have to film um povs i try to get a pov of every single run at the resort if they have them open so um you know that is my process but like i have no idea where i'm going one of the things that I do try to do, though, is usually do one of the big guys, one or two of the big guys that everybody knows of, the Nubs, the Boyne, but I also really want to try to mix in the ones that you and I have probably never heard of. Because those are the ones that, first of all, need my support because they, they, you know, they don't have the marketing budget. I am the marketing for them. Um, but then the other part of that is that they're the ones that shock you the most. You pull up and you're like, damn, this place is really cool. And I would have never went here unless I made a, like an effort to go out of my way to like go to this place. So that's kind of my, my method to my madness when I choose these kind of tours and like where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. We are one of the same. I share your spirit. <laughs> I try to hit two scariest a day if I can, if it's usually a solo kind of thing. Yep. But uh, yeah, that's a great segue, Mid Midwest Resort Guide. So I was on your inter interactive map 
And this is a pretty huge boundary. So you got Minnesota on the north, Missouri <laughs> yep. is the southern border, South Dakota on the west, all the way to Ohio on the east. I believe it includes 11 states. Again, the bulk of the ski areas are in Minnesota, Michigan, Michigan and Wisconsin. Minnesota and Wisconsin, yep. But that's still, that's a lot of ground to cover. So oh, yeah. um, 120 ski areas you mentioned earlier. Where are you maybe in that pursuit? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, usually at the <laughs> end of the year, I, I'll sit down and like actually map it out. Um, right now, I think I'm at like 32 on the year. Um, I could be wrong on that number. Um, but, you know, I usually kind of just take it in stride as the season's going on. And then, um, you know, I kind of, you know, then sit down on a map and start Xing them off and trying to figure out which ones we have left. You know, I do get forced to go, not forced, like use that so loosely, but I do have contracts, like filming contracts that I have to go to certain ones to do um, different, not for Midwest gears, but for our production side. Um, so I do have to go to, to those. But other than that, I usually try to go to some of these rogue ones just for fun. But yeah, the map is so fun because it's interactive and it uses your uh, location on your phone. So like you could be you know, let's say you're on a trip at Boyne, you know, you could pull it up and like just hit like, you know, location services and then boom, it'll show you everything. And we try to update it. I've, you know, it is a big undertaking to try to update like who's open, how many runs they have open. So I try to do it at least once or twice a week to give, you know, an update of the scope of things. But it's really fun because the whole premise of it is just to show people that there is skiing closer to you than you probably think. You know, there's people in Chicago, there's people in, you know, Missouri, St. Louis that are probably like, oh, I got to drive like six hours to go hit, you know, snow. No, you got a ski area like within half an hour of you. And you would have probably never known that if you didn't look at this map and see all these dots like scattered throughout, you know, the entire Midwest. So it's really fun. It's a, you know, I think it's one of our most popular uh, tools and, and we're definitely going to continue to use it. We're looking at ways to evolve it um, to make it better and better every single year. So we're excited to kind of keep adding resorts to it too. Every every year I find like one or two more, like, you know, a rope toe, community rope toe one that I had no idea about. Somebody emails me. So then I put it on the list. So um, that number, it's like, I don't know what it is. It's like 120, but it keeps going up and it keeps going up. So <laughs> it's been kind of a fun project to work on. No, it's exciting. It's such a fun tool. I was just playing around with it. And I'm just like, oh, what's this? What's this? You know? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, NSAA, National Ski Areas Association, you know, they have their so-called list, but I guess they don't make it public, you know, how many ski areas are operating in the U.S. each year, which is a little frustrating. And and I like how you kind of, I mean, you're creating your own for for sort of your region, which is which is great. And it's 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 helps fill in the blanks, I think. It's been really fun because they actually reach out to me. Um, I work with their data set <laughs> guy. Uh, yeah, Love so it. uh, it's been really fun to be able to uh, you know, work with those guys to get the accurate, the number a little more accurate because, you know, they were hovering around like just over a hundred, 108, I think it was some of their last reports. And uh, they reach out to me and they're like, you know, Hey, what do you got that we're missing? So we compare like data, data sets, and then they've added. So this year they were a lot more accurate um, than pre this past season. They were a lot more accurate than, um, than previous seasons. But yeah, I'm very involved with, with that process for the Midwest specifically. Yeah, no, I, I definitely try to comb through my region just to see, like, is this right? And who's who's missing? And, <laughs> and, and yeah, it's it's fascinating how just not everybody's accounted for necessarily, but it's not a perfect science either, I suppose. Exactly. Yep. Are you ready to switch gears a little bit to our first trivia game? Sure. Yeah. All right. This is one's really quick hitters. This is really just for the audience just to learn a little bit more about Midwest ski areas. Quick note, there is a wild card question of the five questions. First question is multiple choice. According to NSAA, how about that segue? 
the oldest Midwest ski area in continuous operation started in 1933. Which is it? Is it A, Capper Fay Peaks, B, Granite Peak, C, Hilger Heigl Ski Club, or D, Mont Ripley Ski Area? Yeah, so this is a, this is a, just not to get in the weeds on this one, but, uh, <laughs> please do. you know, this is a hotly debated one because there's like documented and undocumented and like in the thirties, they had no one really like did a great job of documenting things. So 33, um, you know, Granite Peak is definitely 36. Um, Ripley is a weird one because of that factor. Like, I think like documented they're like 35 but they have some documents with a, a rope toe that was kind of unofficial from fred paps that might have gone back to 33. so i'm gonna go ripley because i think that's the answer correct you got it got it <laughs> but you're right you know i mean it, that's the thing you know think about that era you know things it's, weren't documented well yeah. and as they are today so uh okay well hey, at least we can agree on that even if it's a little bit of still a debate <laughs> uh perhaps for locals uh yeah and then uh i guess they're part of the michigan tech universe this is a sort of fun yes. fact flushing yeah. out the the question a little bit uh michigan tech university full day lift ticket sixty dollars and one thing that I saw on the website, which I liked as a Yukon Husky uh, alum and fan, they have a Husky Cafe. So how about that? Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't know that. I have yet to be up there. It's uh, it's a little far up the peninsula, but it's definitely on the list because it's, uh, first of all, it's super historic. But I also heard it's a really cool area, too. So I'm excited to get up there. All right. Question number two. This is Guess the State uh, States. You're going to get this. Maybe we should just skip it. But I guess for the listeners, it's probably a uh, benefit. The Midwest is home to the second and third most ski areas by state. Again, this is an NSAA. Uh, Michigan question. and Wisconsin. Got it. Michigan, Wisconsin, <laughs> number two, number three. Although it's funny, the uh, the data set that I think I pulled this was from. It's been, it's been moving a little bit, yeah. Down, because yep. I think in the pursuit of soul, it actually was higher, but then it went we, down. Yeah, we had to adjust the numbers because the new data set from last season, I think we were using numbers from two years ago, and then last year's data set was a little different. So it's been kind of moving a little bit back and forth. But yeah, generally speaking, we're usually like either tied with Colorado for Michigan, and Michigan's usually number two, and then um, Wisconsin's the one that kind of bumps back and forth just depending on the year sort of thing. And who knows? New Maybe York we'll make it run at New York. Yeah, yeah, I know, 52. Yeah. <laughs> my neighbor here so uh we love our near cat skills adirondacks you name it we're there all right you got that one 100 here we go guess the ski area question number three what midwest ski area has the biggest vertical drop Ooh. well this damn dude this is another one you get into the weeds with lutzen's Ooh. a weird one because back in the day this is i'm good Giving you like history lessons. Love here. it. So back in the day, they used to be able to ski all the way from the summit of Lutzen all the way down to Lake Superior because Lutzen used to own the resort that was on Lake Superior. So it was a one-way trip. You couldn't get back up the hill unless by car, but they used to calculate it into their vertical. So that would bring them just over the thousand foot mark. I don't think they put that in there anymore. So I think they're closer to like 850 on the official count. And Bohemia is like right up there. And that's where it's like, I don't know which one. Um, I think I'm going to go with Bohemia, though, by just a few feet. It's probably like 30 feet difference or something. Uh, that is uh, incorrect, only oh! because only because I 
think, although I think it's still in your region, it's actually yeah. Terry is it uh, Terry Peak? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because it's like Fucking South Dakota, Terry Peak. <laughs> yeah, way way left boundary, west boundary of, of yep. the whole region, and it's sort of an outlier. It's the only ski area probably within like what five hour drive. Yeah, they're they're in a little zone there. I I make a lot of jokes about them because they're kind of in no man's land. Yeah. They're like not yeah. the west, but they're not really the Midwest because they're so far west. Um, but I kind of always forget about them. But another like really cool little ski, not little, like decent sized ski area um, that I definitely want to make it out. But once again, it's just like you got to like that's a trip. Either you're going out west or you're going specifically for Terry Peak. So, yeah, yeah, I know. I threw that out there because I was like, wow, that's just in the middle of nowhere. And I think <laughs> when I read a little bit about it, I've never been there. I was just like, oh, yeah, it's sort of this anomaly. Yeah. Question number four, uh, multiple choice. I think you'll also get this one. What U.S. Olympic gold medalist learned to ski at Buck Hill? Uh, Johnny Mosley, Lindsey Vaughn, Peekaboo Street, or Tommy Moe? Uh, Lindsey Vaughn. Uh, and, and, and another person that's of note great. right now that's just crushing it is Paula Maltzen. Uh She's been doing really well. I think she just took fourth in one of the most recent events. Uh, she's an up-and-comer. She's skiing she's the in best my region. she's ever skied. Or at least yeah. she lives there now, yeah. Um, and she grew up uh, skiing uh, Buck Hill Racing Team as well. Um, yep. So another one to keep your eyes on. And uh, Christina Kosnick and... I mean, geez, there's so many, like the list goes on. I actually have a spreadsheet of like all of the uh, gold medalists for X Games and Olympians um, somewhere in one of my drives. And it's pretty impressive when you start to look at the numbers um, of how many people, how many great skiers and snowboarders have come out of this region. And once again, just tends to be overlooked. I'm actually interested in that, uh, that file, if, <laughs> if you don't mind sharing it at some point. I can send that to you. Yeah, yeah. Please, please. I'd love to get in on that. Uh, all right. Question number five. And this is actually the wild card question. Guess the ski area. What was the first Michigan ski area to offer night skiing? Oh, Hickory Hills. I know this. <laughs> because, because you posted the question. <laughs> yeah, I was following you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I did. I Originally, somebody told me it was the first in the U.S., but I looked that up, and that wasn't the case. They were beat out by just a, a handful of years. Um, really cool area. That's another rope toe only uh, community place, but, you know, just, like, fun little thing. You know, it's just crazy. You would never think that, you know, this little ski area was the first to have lights in it, you know, on it, you know, it's just, it's cool. So very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, that's actually a good segue to our next segment, uh, our Midwest ski area news projects of notes. Uh, we were chatting a little bit before we hit record, sort of just new chairlifts, terrain expansions, any improvements at skiers in the region that you think listeners should know about. Yeah. I mean, we, um, you know, COVID, I, and I called this back when COVID started, you know, I did a video on this that said kind of, I thought that, you know, obviously COVID brought a lot of, a lot of bad things with it, you know, from obviously, uh, you know, fatality to, to businesses closing. But I do think that the one thing, the one shining thing that came from this was I thought that it would really transform the ski area for a few, re the ski um, industry for a few reasons. The first being, I think we're just getting more people into the sport, right? We're getting people that have never really even thought about skiing and all of a sudden they're coming out. Um, but the other one, which I think people didn't really think about, which was it forced ski areas to make changes that they have been holding onto for a very long time. And, and one of the most common ones that I bring up is online ticketing. This was something before COVID, almost like very, almost like you could probably count them on your hands, like how many Midwestern Hills did online ticketing before COVID. Post-COVID, everybody's almost doing online ticketing to some degree. That's just like one example, but there's like a host of different examples. And I really do think it kind of 
re-energized our ski industry, but it also gave us a lot more capital to reinvest in stuff that has been kind of put off for many, many years just because we have, the, you know, a lot of skiers just don't have the, the capital to, to invest in that. So the past couple of years, we've seen so much, um, you know, capital investment, either on snowmaking, uh, new lifts, uh, infrastructure updates, groomers, like you name it, and it's going down. This year, we are expecting 12 different lifts across the Midwest, which is nuts. Um, it's the most that we have ever seen in the Midwest, um, as far as my records, maybe dating back to like the 70s, there might have been a big boom in there. But, you know, as far as data sets for the past like 15, 20 years, easily the top that we'll see. And I'm sure dollar signs is going to be blow it out of the water just because not only inflation, but all the projects going in with snowmaking and, and chairlifts and all that. I think 10 of the lifts have been officially announced. I'm still waiting on two, one in Minnesota and one in uh, Michigan's UP. So we'll keep an eye out for those. And then I'll do a video kind of breaking down all of those. But it's really fun to see ski hills get re-energized like and, and just starting to get like that, that, that fresh coat of paint. And even if it's not necessarily new shiny lifts, snowmaking, infrastructure, all this stuff is so important. And honestly, it just creates such a better experience for everybody on the hill. And I think the best thing about it is it's not just the Boyne Mountains of the world. It's not just the Lutzens. It's not just the Nubs Knob. It's like the mom and pop areas are reinvesting. And that's so cool to see because they're starting to get the formula. Like we have to reinvest in snowmaking. We have to reinvest in amenities. We have to make it a great experience for our skiers. And that's super cool to see. So I'm excited to see what happens in the next few years. Will that traffic, will that capital continue to kind of be at a higher level? I don't know. That's something that we're all kind of sitting on our, you know, back and just kind of like, oh, we want it to be there. We don't know if it'll be there. But, you know, the way things are going, I, I love I love the improvements because I think as a consumer, you see it, you know, whether it's just painting walls inside a chalet or whether it's a new TV screen or a brand new lift, those consumers see that and immediately they are, you know, excited to be there and they're happy that, you know, they're seeing that their dollars go back into the resort. So it's been really fun to watch um, all this stuff progress over the past couple of years. Well, yeah. And, and the other thing I definitely want to hear your take on, because you mentioned going to conferences, one of which you went to was uh, through the Midwest Ski Areas Association Conference, mm -hmm. I believe. And there were some really, really interesting and positive findings from the some, from the trade show that the Midwest ski scene is quite healthy. Midwest leads the nation in nights the night skiing market. Yeah, <laughs> Midwest has the youngest demographic of skiers. I mean, you yep. own the beginner market. That's rental yep. gear. That's lessons. Yep. That's you know eating and drinking in the lodge, not us brown bagging it in the parking lot and then exactly. skiing and riding. And the highest percentage of summer revenue. Yeah, and I think, you know, to, to kind of like wind it back a little bit, uh, one of the things I always remind myself as a skier, we get skiers and snowboarders, are, us diehards are, we put the blinders up, you know, we, we've been doing it for so long, we kind of forget that, you know, we support the industry, obviously, we, we give them dollars through our season passes and, and stuff like that, buying beers at the chalet. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the people that are really paying for these new toys are the beginner skiers, right? The intermediate, the families, the first timers. And, and that's what we need to support as, as diehards too. And we, I, I will say as, as diehards, we are not very good at this. And you might be like, okay, wait, what are you talking about? You know, think about it for a minute though. Somebody buys a lift ticket for 70 bucks. And the first thing they do is they ski down a beginner run and they're getting heckled from the chairlift. Could you imagine, could you just put this into perspective for a second? Could you imagine if you went bowling 
and you paid all this money to like rent out a bowling lane, right? And some dude is standing behind you the entire time and he's like heckling you about how shitty you are at that sport. Would you come back to that bowling scene again? Probably not. And, um, you know, that's just something we have to put in perspective as skiers. And I'm not saying we have to get rid of that culture. I think it is, it's fun, right? Like we have this little like niche of a culture. Um, you, we have a lot of quirkiness with it. And I think that's important to what we do, but we just have to be mindful of it. And we have to understand that the hill is dominated by beginner and intermediate skiers. And we need to make sure that those beginner and intermediate skiers are being taken care of. So just kind of a, a little bit of a plug here. You know, if you are an advanced skier, you're in, you know, you know what you're doing on the hill, be mindful of that. Like if you see somebody struggling, please go help them. Don't discourage them. Don't make fun of them. Reach out to them. Say, hey, like, you know, if you see them trying to put their skis back in with the binding or clipped up already, go help them, go talk to them. Like you don't have to be, you know, Mr. Instructor or anything, but even just like helping somebody carry their skis for the first time, uh, showing them where to go if they have questions, all of that, that is so important because you gotta remember like that shows well on all of us. And that's the reason that we all get to get new expansions. We get new shiny toys. We get new snowmaking because we pay, we pay the, the operational cost, but we don't really, as diehards, we don't really go into the profit margin, right? Like we're just kind of like making it flatline. So the more that we can get beginners, um, you know, families, go out there, spend money, you know, we're brown bagging it in the parking lot. They're going to the Chile and spending a couple hundred bucks. Like those are the people that really help us get that new terrain, get that new shiny new toys and all that stuff. So we have to make sure we support that. Um, so just sorry, a little plug there, but I think it's like so important to say that because people don't have that mindset. Sometimes they just think I paid $300 or $400 for a season pass. They owe me the world, but it's not really quite, it doesn't work out that way sometimes. A lot of times, you know, right now, the ski industry, especially in the Midwest is I, when I started Midwest gears, I think the reason I started, it was not only for, for our diehards, but I think it was for the opportunity we have, you know, we talk all the time in the industry about, we have an issue with, you know, not getting as much diversity, uh, socioeconomic status in the ski industry. Well, what better place to do that than in the Midwest where we have ski hills literally inside of our cities. Right. You talk about Minneapolis, you talk about Milwaukee, you talk about even Chicago to some degree, you talk about Detroit, these areas, all, all these cities have ski areas that are literally 15 to 20 minutes away from their city centers. So, you know, we need to make sure that we're, we're aware of that. And as, as a industry, you know, we need to support those people coming in and kind of supporting and, and like, kind of like what you're saying with those stats, like we do, we have the youngest, we have, you know, most like rentals out there. And that's awesome because that's what we need to bring people in. And, you know, it's just the starting point, but those people, if we hook them, they're going to spend over their course of their lifetime of skiing, they're going to spend thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars traveling to your destination areas, traveling to your East coast, your West coast. And, and really what's beautiful about it is, you know, I don't know if you guys are watching the last of us, so like, but it spreads like that. It spreads like a fungus, you know, because like you get like one or two people in and they bring their friends in, they bring their family in kind of like we got started. Right. Then all of a sudden it's like, it's not just one skier you're influencing. Now it's like four, five, six, seven, eight. And it just kind of continues to spread. And, um, and that's good for everybody. And I know crowding and overcrowding is kind of this big thing that everybody's pushing on. But you and I both know, you know, if you are willing to put in a little bit of extra driving time and willing to do a little bit of searching, there are plenty of ski areas that you can go to that are not crowded, that are affordable, 
and honestly are just as good as some of those other ones. They might not have the fancy amenities, the high-speed lifts. They might not have the on-site lodging, the spas, whatever. But if you're focused on just skiing with no crowds, there's plenty of options out there, guys. We just all need to be ambassadors for skiing. Another great segue. I couldn't couldn't have uh, teed it up any better. <laughs> We're going to play our next game. It's actually called Name That Ski Area. Oh, so, fun. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to share the ski area, a few ski area statistics, vertical, average snowfall, lift, a lift name, a trail name, and then nickname slash local reference. And you just guess the ski area. Uh, okay. Two quick notes. There's six here and they have, they share something in common that will be okay. revealed at the end. And there is another wild card baked in. <laughs> the third wild card reference of the episode uh we can go one by one i could read all the stats of that ski area first and you can guess or i could read them all which i guess maybe might mix things up for you a little bit but yeah let's go one by one because right. it'll probably be a little easier all right vertical 262 average snowfall 60 lift name freeway rope toe trail name olympic dreams nickname race city oh that's buck hill that's buck hill one for one uh, 700 vertical, 75 inches, Dasher Express, upper uh, dusty. Granite Peak. Granite Peak, two for two. <laughs> okay. Vertical, 260. Uh, average snowfall actually was not available, but uh, lift name, Triple Chair. <laughs> That's going to really <laughs> nice up for you. Trail name, Nutcracker. And the nickname or the local reference, $20 Tuesdays. Oh, that's going to be Tyrell Basin. Got it. Now, picking up any, any uh, commonalities here? Uh, yeah. vertical 825, average snowfall 115, lift name Timberwolf Chair, trail name The Stash, nickname Ski Cross. You actually named the ski area earlier. Is this Lutzen? It yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought, but it's like, I'm getting, th so it's funny when people like talk to me in trail names because I don't <laughs> know them. Like, cause I go to so many and I, I, I laugh because I show up like when I'm filming and they're like, oh, let's meet over at like, you know, like Timber Puff. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Like, where is that at? Like, you know, and I, I said it, it yep. it's funny, but yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. I actually have heard that from my friend actually, that was on the Tahoe podcast, uh, she said, because I, I had a, a, some sort of trivia game with trail names, and she said, you East Coast skiers and your trail names. Yeah, you guys. We just tell each other what lift to meet at the bottom of. It's so funny because the trails are so big. They're unnamed, yep. you know, tree bull skiing and tree skiing. It was just such a funny little perspective there. You're nailing it. This is These are all just softballs for you, although maybe I'll see if you get the wild card. Not This is not the wild card. The next one is 485, 150 inches, Vista Triple, Stage Head Bowl. Yeah. Different lift pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is probably being revealed is that these are all ski areas that were in pursuit of Soul 2. <laughs> <laughs> is it indie pass but yeah that too yeah both of the, and they're all in the indie pass yeah and the final one one you probably wouldn't get because it's it, without me telling you that because i mixed up the three ski areas that are owned under the same ownership nordic mountain <laughs> little switzerland the rock so i just i mixed up their uh their vertical all their all their stats we were 100 percent you're gonna get it anyway so rick schmitz, so that's Resorts, rick schmitz yeah. yeah the brother yeah <laughs> so uh anyway so yeah that one was was cake the last game here will be the one that will uh, hopefully test you out but before we get there i can't believe we haven't even gotten to this yet but um i'm just curious about uh, again, you ski a lot of different places, obviously for filming and just uh, just because it's fun to go to different places. Uh, what's your pass uh, setup? 
you know, oh, what kind of passes do you hold? Like, how do you, how do you do all that? of them? No, <laughs> exactly. I figured that might be your answer. Yeah. Um, kind of. Yeah. So, you know, I, I am super fortunate enough to work in this industry where I get the pleasure to kind of ski most of the, the Midwest areas, um, you know, under my work company pass, which kind of encompasses basically all of the Midwest. So that's super fun. Um, I do have an epic pass for, for Midwesterners. I will say there's a few that really just jump out at me as like great passes. The first is the Indy pass, obviously so many ski areas. I don't even know. I lost count now of how many in the Midwest they have. They probably have like 30 at this point, such an awesome deal. Uh, and if you're not on there and you're in the Midwest, do it because I mean, by Granite Peak and Lutzen alone, that pretty much pays for the whole pass. There's some blackout dates, but honestly, it's easy to easy enough to work around those. The other one that's a sleeper pick is the Minnesota, or sorry, the um, the Wisconsin Passport Program, um, or the Wisconsin Skiing Passport, I think is what it's called, and that will get you a day ticket at I think 18 ski areas in in Wisconsin, and it, that one's another really inexpensive one. I think it's like 150 or 60 bucks or something. Very, very affordable. Once again, you go to like Cascade and you go to Alpine Valley and it basically pays for itself. And then the last one, which is a little bit of a sleeper pick. And um, I got to give a huge props to uh, Stuart Winchester uh, for kind of pointing this one out quite frequently. Um, and this is the Ski uh, Ski Cooper Pass, which has like connections to all of these Midwestern hills. So I think that one's like super affordable as well. It's like a couple hundred bucks and you get like a day ticket or a few day tickets at so many different uh, resorts, especially in the UP. So those are kind of like my ones that I would eye up as like as a Midwesterner if you're looking at passes. But you know, this is an evolving sport and the pass structure is always evolving. So who knows what it's going to look like um, next season or the year after. But um, but yeah, it's a really fun, fun program. Yeah, the other one I saw again on your website, you wrote an article about it. So this is your word. Probably the mine. Michigan one. You got it. Michigan yeah. snow sports. That's another good one. Yeah. The Michigan one's good. That's that's another one. I think it's like three hundred bucks and you get a lift ticket at every ski area in Michigan. Another great value. If you if you live in Michigan, I mean, you go to Boyne, you go to Nubs, you go to Highlands, and that thing's paid for. So um, you know, that those are great passes. And I think one thing I would definitely encourage people, and this goes for like East Coast too, is get out and travel, guys. Like it is so fun. You know, even if it's a small hill, it's just fun to experience something new. You might have your local hill, your little go-to, you know, after work or your main main guy, but go experience some other hills because there's so much out there. And yes, it might not be the best skiing in the world, but you might have a blast there for a reason you never thought of, right? Maybe they have this little run that, you know, is kind of a, you know, just an offshoot that's really sweet. Maybe the bar is amazing and you love the bar whatever it may be, but I think the variety, especially in the Midwest and on the East Coast, how much variety we have within just a few hours is so cool. And you don't get that out West. Like you got to drive hours and hours to hit the next resort. We could be at freaking 10 resorts in like two hours. So the fact that that is, uh, that's a huge perk. And I think that's something that we got to definitely be aware of. And, and I always encourage people to get out there and try to visit as many resorts as they can. Could not agree more. I got my 151 on my uh, my my regional bucket list Woo! to try to get to them all. Uh, <laughs> like you though, and I haven't visited 32 this season. Probably halfway there by now. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It reminds me of the stop north northeast slopes in Vermont on the way back from Burke Mountain, which is kind of off in its own off I 91, uh, northern Vermont, in the Northeast Kingdom, where the interstate splits. I-89 North goes to Stowe and Mad River Glen and 
But if you stand in 91 going towards Canada, basically, uh, there's Burke. And on the way is Northeast Slopes. And they have this great, like, hamburger. Such a simple thing. But it's like, you know, it's like local sourced beef. Yep, it's, yep. Uh, and it's so funny. I went there and uh, they had promoted it. It was highly touted. And when I call, when I went to ask about it, I was like, oh, yeah, can I get a ham- where do I get the hamburger? She's like, oh, the guy that does it hurt his foot. Done for the season. <laughs> It was just like that was like it was like just that answer like made me this is like made my day. I'm like that is amazing. There's one guy that like does this and it's so so respected and so popular. So I gotta I gotta go back this season uh, to to try to you gotta, you gotta get that burger, man. Okay, I tell you, if you're in the air and it's a rope tail, yeah, and uh, it's funny too. Big segment in the weeds. There's this other skier in northern Vermont, closer to Stowe and Mad River, called Cochran's, and that's actually where the Cochran ski fam racing family came from uh barbara ann who won in 70 and then ryan um who won the silver medal this past february and that's just like a racing community ski hill northeast slopes it's just terrain like like the people that run the area the volunteers they help the kids like build jumps and like it's just it's two totally different like similar operations but two completely different focuses you know, racing, form, speed, and it's just yep. like having fun, jumping, wiping out, and then doing it again. It's just like the, the coolest thing to see that. Um, and I, I just love when I think of that example and, and sharing it. All right. We uh, probably running out of time here. I do want to ask you one thing about Midwest ski history. You know me with my trivia games. You can probably tell <laughs> I do like answers to questions. Um, you wrote an interesting article, which I thought was worth noting, about some of the unique ski lifts in the Midwest ski areas. And the, is the original Sun Valley lift from 36 still at Boyne? Yeah, I wrote it uh, a couple weeks ago. Okay. Yeah, it, it's still uh, in its capacity. It uh, The only real original metal on that now at this point is probably the terminals because Riblet did a huge overhaul on it. Um but yeah, they still run it. They run it for foot traffic to do the sky bridge up there. And it's just a cool piece of history. Um, yeah. yeah, the the story goes that they bought it. Uh, Everett Kirscher want, wanted to be the first in the Midwest with the chairlift. Um, had some connections with Sun Valley. He used to go out there for ski lessons and essentially sent one of his guys out there. They made an offer. I can't remember what they bought it for. It was very inexpensive, though. And they literally dismantled the thing, threw it on railroad. Uh, railroad car and then shipped it back to Boeing and set it up and opened with the first chairlift in the Midwest and it is still there and it's still operational. So it's a really, really weird, quirky little piece of history, but uh, yeah, it's really cool. I love that stuff. And just even the, for me, just thinking about moving chairlifts, just massive undertaking, <laughs> you know, just, and this, it's obviously very common now. So that's just wild that uh, that happened uh, so long ago. Uh, any other kind of quirky, cool, notable Midwest ski history? Yeah, I mean, I think one that's like super fun that I love uh, telling people is that, you know, Fred Paps Jr., um, heir to the the PBR company, actually started a number of ski areas in the Midwest, and a lot of them are still operational today. He um, operated a a company called Ski Toes Incorporated, and his idea was to basically be Vail before Vail became Vail. So he wanted to basically put rope toes at several ski areas spread out throughout the Midwest, and um, unfortunately, his plan did not really pan out the way it should have because of bad snow years. This was kind of before snowmaking and, um, you know, just didn't pan out. But a lot of the ski areas are still active. So some of those ski areas include Buck Hill, um, Pine Mountain, um, 
I'm going to like freeze up. Oh, Granite Peak was one that he operated. He didn't necessarily start, but he was one of the operators that started that. And uh, there's a couple other that, of course, I'm blinking on right now. But it's a really fun piece of history. And actually, one of the reasons why I drank a lot of PBR is just because of the history that Fred Paps had, Fred Paps Jr. had with the Midwest ski scene. And uh, he was actually instrumental in also marketing it. So what he would do is um, he would pay for their train ride if they bought a lift ticket at some of these places. And this is back when they used to do lots of ski trains from Chicago and they would send, you know, a ski tray full of people up to, you know, Pine Mountain or wherever to go ski. And uh, sorry, Ripley was another one. So he would basically pay for that and he would do all the marketing in, the, in Milwaukee and Chicago. And so he was really instrumental in, in like getting the Midwest ski scene started, you know, really lighting that fire and really getting it kind of off of, you know, off the ground and getting it going. And fortunately, you know, a lot of these resorts didn't really pan out in his favor. He ended up going out, as you probably know, to Bromley. Uh, <laughs> um, I was just uh, I checking the year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I went out to Bromley. I yeah, think that but... would have been like like late 30s-ish yeah, or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he took his J-bar with him from Granite Peak, I believe. Yeah. So um, that's actually where, when he started that. But um, yeah, so he got to start here. That's a really cool little bit of history, which is super cool. And you tell people that and they're like, whoa, that's that's pretty sweet. And then you go back to, I think, my the, the most fun that I have is telling people how many great skiers and snowboarders have come out of the Midwest. I, like I said, I have this list and it just it's pretty comprehensive. But, you know, just Lindsey Vaughn's the most notable. But you have Christina Kosnick, who is also an Olympian. Um, Cindy Nelson up at Lutzen. Paula Maltzen, a lot of freestyle guys coming out of here. And then you have these guys that aren't even really competing at like, you know, an Olympic, like they're not in you know, either a freestyle, but they're just great skiers. And we have, you know, I was talking with a couple of people from Trollhog and they have people that come from all over the world, you know, to film segments, street segments, snowboarding segments in Minneapolis, because it is some of the best urban riding that you will find anywhere. Um, the snowpack's great. We have a bunch of great rails. So, I mean, the culture here is, you want to talk about some great skiers and snowboarders like we don't have a lack of it you just have to look for it and once you find it you're kind of always amazed that there's some pretty crazy people coming out of the midwest and um yeah they might not spend their entire career here but they get their start here and um and that's just as important as obviously their their ended up career well whether they got their start in the midwest or whether they're skiing there now we're moving on to game three the final <laughs> one the race to close or stay open Oh, I got stats on this. All right. Well, I think you were, <laughs> I, I might have built in a twist to safeguard you from totally owning it, but maybe we'll see. As they would have it, another bracket competition kicks off tonight. That would be the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Yes. The first yep. four playing games. So, in that <laughs> spirit, and of course, the inspiration that Matthew provided with his bracket challenge, the final trivia game to kind of close out the episode is going to be a final four bracket challenge. The race to close, or stay open the longest, Midwest edition. So I looked up the closing dates of four <laughs> Midwest ski areas, which typically have the longest season. I cross-check a few sources, yeah. uh, local freshies, uh, skicentral.com, a couple other ones. And it seemed to shake out to Boyne, Granite Peak, Lutzen, and Mount Bohemia. Correct. But before we dive into those comparisons, we need to rank them. So to do this, I'm going to ask you one question about each ski area, <laughs> and you're going to okay. hate the topic. <laughs> okay. And then uh, if you get it right, you get to assign the that ski area, the, any seed you want, one to four. And if you get it wrong, okay. I'll, I'll assign the seed. That's how we'll kind of keep it a little honest. So of those four, which one you want to start with? Dealer's choice. All right. Granite Peak. How many ski areas in North America are also na trail names 
at Granite Peak. So yeah, the the topic that you're gonna hate because you don't know them are trail names. <laughs> That's yeah. why I said that. Three, four, five, or six. You don't have to name. You don't have to name the trails. I'm just looking right. at the number here. Um, give me a moment here. We'll go five. Close four. Okay. Mission Ridge, Wisconsin, uh, Washington, Sundance, yep. Utah, Snowshoe, West Virginia, and I threw in yep. Panorama, British Columbia as the fourth one. Yeah. I would have given you a three for U.S. <laughs> All right, Lutzen, how many trail names are named after animals? <laughs> oh, my God. So many. A lot. Um, 12, 24, 36, or 48? Dude. Caribou, moose, timber. A lot of bears. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the choices again. I'm just gonna 12, throw like 24, up. 36, or 48. They have about like 96 named runs, I think. There, so 24 seems about well, 24. Oh, 36. 36. <laughs> All right. Damn it. All right, moving on. Moving it's on. a lot. I knew it was a lot. It I'm like, they got a lot. It's a lot. All right. I know it's like so funny. That's why I was like, oh, you have to say this. Actually, like one, two, I counted them up. All right, Boyne Mountain question. It Eats Delight is a trail lookers left. Mm -hmm. What two New Hampshire ski areas also have a trail named after an idiot? Adatash in New Hampshire, Gunstock, Cannon, or Loon. So I'm looking for two of those four have an idiot. I just need you to get one of them. You get two guesses. Adatash, oh Cannon, Gunstock, or Loon. Adatash. Correct. So you got the question. All right, where do you want to rank? And the, the other one was, uh, what, do you want to guess the other one? Uh, Loon. Uh, Cannon, but uh, Adatash, okay. it's actually Idiot's Option, and then Cannon has Idiot's Delight. So where do you okay. want to rank Boyne? One, four, two, or three? Uh, Boyne is proud. Who? Boyne? You're going to give him a four? I think you're, you're leaning on giving them the four. Yeah. Boyne is either third or fourth. I'd probably go fourth, though. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. All right. And the last one, Mount Bohemia. What candy bar is also a trail name at Bohemia? Butterfinger, Milky Way, Snicker, or Three Musketeer? I think it's Milky Way, right? It is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was that was a stretch. There wasn't a lot of things I could pull from the Mount Bohemia trail map, unfortunately. <laughs> one, two, or three seed? I'll go three. All right. I, so just because they're in order, I'm going to do Granite Peak is the one, and I'll do Lutzen as the two. Just like the previous two games, and your wife picking out that undisclosed Akron location, I'm going to throw a wild card element into this game, which is you have the option to swap out one of the above-mentioned ski areas if you feel there are better chances of another unnamed ski area staying open later than those four. Would you want to stay with who you got? Because you say you have that knowledge of who's... Dude, so oh. here's, the X, here's the X factor that... Um, so as you know, like closing strategy is a whole thing. And uh, because once you start to get to March, especially in the Midwest, you're kind of watching your dollars start to float away. Um, you're losing money on a daily basis. But here's where it gets really interesting. Charles Skinner has a very, very, very aggressive closing policy. He, as you know, you can see Granite Peak and Lutzen are both on that list. He wants to stay open as late as possible. He might go to weekends or reduce hours, but he wants to be like one of the last guys. This is where it gets interesting. Uh, Snow River, he just bought this past year, which is the old Indian Head and Blackjack. They've had one of the best seasons as far as snowpack, and they're getting more this week. The temps look great. The question I have is, is he going to take that same mentality that he has had at Lutzen and Granite Peak 
and put it on Snow River. Because if he does, I think Snow River would actually beat out Granite Peak as far as, you know, being the ability to stay open. Now, does he actually do that? I don't know. That's something I can't really answer. But those that's kind of the X factor. If he was going to keep one open, it would definitely be Blackjack and not Indian Head. Indian Head's lift structure is just a little wonky right now until they get the other one. So they'd have to run a lot of lifts to make it operational. So I think if I had to pick one, it, it's not Blackjack now. It's a Black River Basin is, I think, the, the technical term for that one. Um, but... That would be my guess. Like, I would be willing to swap. Boynes had a really rough season this year. So we're talking this season, right? This season, yeah. A couple Boynes had a rough season. Months. Not like not a fault of them, just like yeah. weather's been rough. But I would probably swap Boyne okay. for Black River Basin. Let's do it. Let's keep things interesting. Look upon it in a few, hopefully, months, maybe. <laughs> All right, so you got the one versus four. Granite versus Black River Basin. That's that. I mean, that's really Dude, that's tough. Like, that's the championship. It sounds like so. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I would go. I honestly, uh, it's a little bit of a left field pick, but I'm gonna go Black River Basin. And I, as soon as we're done here, I'm gonna text their GM and say what, ask them what their closing strategy is this year. <laughs> like, did I get this right or no? I love um, it. But I think that they're gonna push. They have. They've had such a good snowpack year. Um, you know, the question really is going to be traffic, you know, at some point, if you're not getting enough traffic, it just doesn't make sense to keep pushing opening, you know, they could easily beat out Granite Peak, in my opinion, if, if they wanted to. So I'm going to go Black River Basin. I don't know how confident I am in that just because there's so many unknowns, but that's what we're going to do. Cinderella stories are my favorite this time of year. <laughs> All right. Lutzen, Mount Bohemia. What do you got in the two? I'm going Lutzen. Um, they, yep. they made it to May last year, which was pretty remarkable. It was the longest on record for them. But, you know, uh, they've had a good snowpack. Bohemia has kind of like been a little wonky this year. They do have a system coming in this week that's going to bring them more snow. They always push it as far as they can. But honestly, it's just been a little bit for Bohemia. It's been a little bit of a weaker year for natural snow. And Lucent has been making snow up until just a few weeks ago. So they are definitely planning for a long spring season. I'm going Lucent. All right. Now, I did uh, have my closing date little table here. But of course, I don't have Black River Basin in there. So I will defer to you. <laughs> Regardless of whatever metric you want to use, who do you got to stay open in the race to stay open longest this year? And I'm going to go Lutzen to win it all. Yep. I'm going to do the exact same thing. I think we're going to go until um, the 6th. It'll be a reduced reduced hours. It'll probably only be, you know, 10 o'clock until 3 or something, too. And it's just going to be Eagle Mountain, but they're going to spin that chair. And I think they're going to get that that first weekend in May. And um, and I think Black River won't be far behind, though. I think that they will be open till late April. I would say probably the weekend of the 22nd or the 29th. Um, I think it's mostly just going to be traffic at that point. They're just not going to have enough traffic to really make it worth staying open a little bit longer. But I'm going Lutzen first weekend of May. Perfect. That's the bracket. All right. <laughs> uh, that was fun for me to at least hear you work through. And we're going to keep tabs on it. And I'm going to report back. So, you should, uh, yeah. So I'm thank excited. you very much for that. Yeah, either way. Let's hope it's just a long <laughs> for everybody. All right. That brings us to our sort of last uh, last segment, last chair. Matthew, anything I missed or messed up or didn't ask you and you'd like to address or anything you'd like to plug before we close out? One of the things I always like just want like to tell people is, you know, support your mom and pops, get out there and support those beginners, you know, get people into the sport that it falls on us as much as it does the ski areas to some degree. Like we, 
you know, we have to take it upon ourselves to be advocates for our sport. It is a very niche sport. You know, I had the opportunity yesterday, Sunday, to go and we're doing this head, um, it's sponsored by Head Skis, and it's basically a beginner series of videos that we're working on. And I had the opportunity to walk somebody through their first lesson. I got to document it, film it, and it was so fun. Like, it was, it was, I didn't even, I didn't even go on skis. Like, I was on boots the entire time filming, but my God, like, being able to watch the joy of somebody else and she was you know middle-aged like has a career very like you know somebody that you wouldn't really typically see like as a first time or not a kid you know not somebody that you know has a family but watching her interact with skiing for the first time and going down that hill and just like laughing and screaming and then introducing her to operate like so much fun and i think we all as as advocates of the sport need to to do that a little more you know if you have a friend that's semi-interested Maybe, you know, they're asking, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going skiing. You know, you, be prepared. Like, you're not going to be able to ski your steep shoots and all of your tree skiing, but you will have fun um, in a different capacity. And I think we need to we need to step up and, as skiers and snowboarders and also kind of play that role a little bit because we can't rely solely on ski areas. You know, they'll do the best they can with marketing to bring people in, but ultimately we um, need to be advocates for our own sport as well. Could not have said it better. Follow Matthew at midwestskiers.com find him on facebook instagram and of course youtube better yet check out his merch shop which he's rocking right now i'm a big fan of that winter wool hat that says in rope toes we trust yeah this is a good one we uh we're gonna get it up on the store i think this week and um i'm, I'm stoked about this one this was a custom design that we've been working on for a while um so that one will be up probably by the time this airs and when you next make it back east, Matthew, let me know. I'd love to make some turns with you and show you around. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute blast. Uh, I have not been to the east, so I have to go. I keep telling myself I lived in Columbus. I was only, you know, uh, not, not too far, but I need to get out there. I need to do some Killington spring bumps. I need to experience it in its full icy glory. Looks like it's 4 o'clock time to catch the last chair thank you for listening have a question comment or correction email me at powderhoundskitrivia at gmail.com you can also follow me on twitter at powderhoundskis better yet subscribe to the podcast at apple Podcasts, google podcast manager verbal spotify and stitcher just type powderhounds podcast until next time See you on the slopes, powder hounds.